Welcome once again to Lato's Law. Here's Steve Lato. We've got a really important case here that came down yesterday. What that means is the court issued its opinion and released it yesterday. This is the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals out there out west. And this is on a case that we've talked about many times before, the U.S. Private Vaults case. And the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has ruled in favor of one of the box owners and uh, has said that uh, the government was wrong in what they did here. And this, of course, is a case where the um, parties that we're talking about that prevailed are represented by the Institute for Justice. So this is good all the way around, and this is a huge, huge win for people who dislike civil asset forfeiture, because that's at the heart of this. So I'm going to read to you the opinion. It is approximately 44 pages long, so I'm going to skim through it, try to hit the highlights. But according to the facts, as recited by the courts, USPV operated a business in Beverly Hills, California, which rented safe deposit boxes to customers. Unlike banks, which also rent those, USPV did not require customers to provide personal information, social security numbers, driver's licenses, or any other form of identification in order to rent a box. Customers kept the keys to the box, and the USPV facility featured significant security measures, including iris scan vault access, 24-7 electronic monitoring, armed response, and a time lock on the vault itself. Protection of customers' anonymity was USPV's main selling point. On its website, the company explained, Our business is one of the very few where we don't even want to know your name. For your privacy and the security of your assets in our vault, the less we know, the better. The website even went so far as to say that it would only cooperate with the government under court order. And a lot of this, people are going to say, well, Steve, that sounds awfully suspicious. No, it's a selling point. I like the idea that I could go put my stuff someplace and, and the person who's renting me the box isn't going to ask me all kinds of questions. Oh, what is it? What are you putting it there? Why, why are you putting it in there? Well, no. Is it really your business? So perhaps unsurprisingly, investigations by various government agencies of individual criminals resulted in the execution of search warrants at U.S. private vaults. For example, past searches pursuant to a warrant of individual safe deposit boxes have uncovered proceeds of crimes such as drug trafficking, illegal gambling, and prostitution rings. Okay, so, so some bad actors may have been involved. After years of investigation into individual USPV box holders, agencies like the FBI, the DEA, and the USPIS concluded that the individual investigations weren't doing anything effective because the real problem was U.S. private vaults, which they believed served as a money laundering facilitator. Accordingly, the agencies opened an investigation into the business itself and its principles back in 2019. The investigation confirmed that the owners of USPV knew of its use by criminals to launder money, solicited illicit business, and committed several crimes themselves. The agencies thus began discussions about obtaining indictments and warrants against the company. Now, internally, the agencies discussed taking the business out which they believed involved seizing eye scanners, the money counter, and the nests of the safe deposit boxes, but not the contents of the boxes. In the summer of 2020, discussions among and within the agencies began regarding the civil forfeiture of assets they expected to find within the safe deposit boxes. A special agent in charge contacted another agent about the USPV investigation and asked, whether the FBI L.A. field office had the capacity to handle civil forfeiture regarding USPV. Uh, They responded the office could handle a large-scale seizure, but she could not offer an opinion on whether there was probable cause 
to forfeit the assets until she reviewed the finalized warrant affidavit. Upon reviewing that, they determined that there was probable cause to seize the contents of the safe deposit boxes. Now notice, these are the agencies coming to the conclusion, not a judge or a magistrate, which is actually the one entity that would matter here. Uh, In March of 2021, a grand jury returned an indictment against U.S. private vaults. The indictment charged the company with conspiracy to money launder, distribute controlled substances, and structure financial transactions. The indictment also included forfeiture allegations, which reflected a finding of probable cause to believe that certain items be seized were subject to forfeiture, such as the nests of the boxes and the keys to the boxes. The two forfeiture counts stated that the United States will seek forfeiture of U.S. private vaults property in the event of defendant USPV's conviction under the counts of the indictment. About a week and a half later, the government submitted applications to a magistrate for search and seizure warrants, both of which included a common affidavit signed by a special agent, the agent in charge of the FBI's investigation. The affidavit largely discussed how USPV's business operated, included how its owners knew the boxes were rented to facilitate money laundering, and according to an exchange between a confidential informant and an owner of USPV, the owner stated, Listen, you don't want every drug dealer in your place either. You need normal people too. The affidavit explained that this statement suggests that drug dealers comprise the majority of USPV customers, and the business has to make an effort to attract non-criminal clientele as well, so as not to be too obvious a haven for criminals. The affidavit also noted that the government sought to seize the box nests as evidence and instrumentalities of the criminality. It explained that the search and seizure warrants the government seeks authorize the seizure of the nests of the boxes themselves, not their contents. But immediately after that sentence, the affidavit says, by seizing the nests, the government will necessarily end up with custody of what is inside the boxes initially, initially, to protect the agencies from claims of theft or damage to the contents of the boxes, the affidavit stated that the agents will follow their written inventory policies. Now, here's the thing I've mentioned before, that quite often you hear stories where the police are accused of stealing stuff. And when they're accused of stealing stuff, they often say, oh, we're immune from a lawsuit over that. That's often their first defense, rather than we didn't steal it. But here, here they actually say, we want to do these things to avoid getting accused of that. A footnote in the affidavit explained that the FBI policy regarding taking custody of an unknown person's property provides in part that agents inspect the property and preserve the property for safekeeping, and that the inspection should extend no further than necessary simply to determine ownership. Ultimately, the warrant issued by the judge approved the following items to be seized, the business computers, the money counters, the digital and video surveillance equipment, the biometric scanners, and the nests of the safety deposit boxes. And they do interchangeably say safe and safety. Technically, it's safe deposit box. But even the court says safety, and they sick it with the square brackets. So with respect to the last item, the warrant stated, this warrant does not authorize a criminal search or seizure of the contents of the boxes. In seizing the nests, agents shall follow written inventory policies to protect their agencies and the contents of the boxes. Also, in accordance with their written policies, agents shall inspect the contents of the boxes in an effort to identify their owners in order to notify them so they can claim their property. So, yes, you can open the box up. Yes, you can record what's in there simply to contact the owner and give them their stuff back. And that was what they were told to do. 
Now, the warrant provided that agents must follow their written inventory policies. The details of those written policies were not included in the government's application for a warrant, except for one sentence above regarding the unknown person's policy. So now they go heavily into what the policy is and so on. And I'm not sure that that all matters. But I can tell you that it basically boiled down to that they wound up executing the search warrant. And despite the affidavit's assertion that it would be irrational for non-criminal customers to choose USPV, it turned out that a number of non-criminals were customers at the facility. So they were thinking like, oh, almost all of them are guilty of something. Turns out, well, a number of non-criminals were customers. These non-criminal customers included Paul and Jennifer Snitko, who are the two named plaintiffs in this case. Uh, They used their box to store legal documents, watches with sentimental value, hard drive backups, coins, and jewelry. They used USPV because their bank had a waiting list for boxes. They live in a wildfire-prone area, and they require a place to store their wedding bands when engaged in sports activities. There's other people listed here, including somebody who stored silver and other personal property, uh, a man who stored $57,000 in cash in his box, and he's concerned about the pandemic and its effects on whether or not he could get to a bank, uh, two people who stored approximately $2,000 in cash as well as $20,000 worth of silver, and personal documents. So after the raid, plaintiffs filed claims with the FBI seeking return of their seized property. The government did not return the property in response Instead, it indicated that it was seeking to forfeit the property. We're going to keep it. So there's an order on that. And um, litigation ensued. Litigation. So on June 9th, 2021, plaintiffs filed their first amended complaint against the government, alleging claims for return of property pursuant to Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 41G and violations of plaintiffs' rights under the Fourth and Fifth Amendments. A few plaintiffs also filed applications for a temporary restraining order asking the court to enjoin the government from continuing with the forfeiture proceedings. The district court granted the application because the forfeiture notice put bluntly provided no factual basis for the seizure of the property as needed to comply with the due process requirements. During the litigation, nearly all plaintiffs and class members had their physical property returned. The government then moved to dismiss plaintiff's complaint, arguing that their action had become moot. Plaintiffs argued that their action was not moot because the government still retained records of its search, including the agent's notes, photographs of box contents, and they sought an injunction ordering the government to sequester and return or otherwise destroy the records generated during the inventory of the U.S. PV deposit box searches. So here's one of the things we're getting at. Many people keep personal documents in a situation like this, a will or an important letter, or, or you know, a judgment of some sort, legal documents. And some of those legal documents are not the kinds of things you want publicized. They're yours, and they're private. And that's one of the reasons you put it in a safe deposit box, so you can get to it, but no one else can. The government pries the box open, figuratively speaking, but probably also literally, and then um, photographs the document. Now they've got a photograph of your will, or, or whatever it might be. Um, should they have that? So federal rule of criminal procedure 41G provides a person aggrieved by an unlawful search and seizure um, may move for the property's return. So the rules allow that to happen. And like I said, this is a 44-page opinion, so I'm going to jump ahead. The district court 
wound up ruling against these people, saying that, well, you know, civil asset forfeiture, it happens. And so the first thing that this court points out is the supplemental instructions take this case out of the inventory search context because the government was trying to say, well, we went in there with a court order that said that we were allowed to take this nest out. Now we've got this stuff in our possession, and uh, we're going to go through and inventory it like we always do. And gosh, when we were inventorying it, we discovered all kinds of stuff that's obviously criminal proceeds, so we, uh, we, we seized it. We seized it. Now, remember that the order that they were following that allowed them to go in and do this said specifically that they could look at the stuff to inventory and return it. It didn't say, oh, and by the way, you can change your mind later and seize it if you want to. So here the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals says the district court abused its discretion in holding that the government did not exceed the scope of the warrant. And that one is one of those cases, I remember doing the video, where I was shocked that the warrant so plainly said on its face what the government should be able to do and what they cannot do. And instead, they went ahead and did exactly what they weren't supposed to do. And the court said, well, you know, eh. And, you know, what's weird about it is we often joke about the home field advantage as lawyers. And there are some courts where I know the judge, I know the staff, uh, I know the prosecutor, and I feel really comfortable in that court. I know other courts where I've gone into where I don't know anybody, and I feel like I'm a stranger in a strange land. And you discover that you don't get treated as well in those courts. And it's something that really shouldn't exist, but it just does because of human nature. And so the weird part is that government agents going to federal court are often playing with the equivalent of a home field advantage because they're in there so often they know the judges, they know the prosecutors, they know the attorneys, they know, they, they know everybody. They know everybody. Otherwise, how do you explain a court siding with the government acting completely contrary to the warrant they had, and a judge going, well, yeah, okay, that's fine, that's fine. So in the conclusion, the court writes, for the foregoing reason, we reversed the district court's order, which held that the plaintiff's Fourth Amendment rights were not violated. Okay, so the court says they were violated. Now, interestingly, when the plaintiffs filed their lawsuit, the government coughed the stuff up and said, here, there's your stuff, drop your suit. But if you drop your suit at that moment in time, these things will never stop. But also, these people have got a valid concern. What about all their stuff that was inventoried and photographed and copied, okay? So the government actually had expressed willingness to do those things in its motion to vacate and remand with instructions to grant plaintiffs request, uh, requested relief. And that was to have the district court order the FBI to sequester or destroy the records of its inventory search pertaining to class members. Now here, the Ninth Circuit remands this to the district court in order for the, the court to order the FBI to dispose of the records, including copies of the records kept on a database that they'd created in the situation. And as such, the government's motion is denied as moot. So the plaintiffs win, the government loses, and a court says absolutely, as a matter of law, these people's rights were violated. And so they get their stuff back, and there's now a court ruling say that, saying that the government acted inappropriately. And so now this is the Ninth Circuit, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. So keep in mind, you got your district court, you got your Court of Appeals, and you got the Supreme Court. Will the government appeal this? And here's the thing. If they appeal this, 
it will put a civil asset forfeiture case squarely in front of the Supreme Court. I have a feeling the government won't. I have a feeling they won't. But, but, we'll see. Because the government right now is going to look at this and go, well, we already gave them their stuff back. All we've been ordered now to do is, is destroy these records and copies and things that we made while we searched their boxes. But this is one of the craziest cases. I've covered a lot of cases in nine years on this channel. Thousands of videos. This is probably the fifth or tenth video I've done on this topic, the U.S. private vaults case. And this is a case where you watch it unfold, and up until yesterday, it seemed crazy that they went and got a search warrant and a seizure warrant that said they could seize this nest, but they weren't allowed to seize the contents of the boxes, and then they went and seized that stuff. And it turns out they planned on doing that all along. And so remember that this is another Institute for Justice case. They are counsel for the plaintiffs here. And they handled this case, and they're pushing it through in order to take it as far as they need to. And I talked to some of the plaintiffs in this case. I met them at a retreat in California last fall. And these are just people who had stuff in a safe deposit box. And were there neighbors in other boxes who were criminals? Maybe. I don't know. They don't know. All they know is they put a bunch of stuff in a box. The FBI seized it and said, you can't have it back. We're going to forfeit this stuff. And when the Institute for Justice got involved, they said, okay, here's your stuff back. Can you drop your case, please? So the Institute for Justice, you have to salute them because most people, if they had to fund this litigation themselves, would have been forced to stop when they got their stuff back. They would have been smart to stop when they got their stuff back because it would end the expense. Why spend more money chasing this? You know, is the government really going to do something with the copy of your will they made? Who knows? But they pursued it on principle because the Institute for Justice will do that. So I'm going to tell you, like I always do, that I'm going to put a link to the Institute for Justice below this video. Please visit their website and consider donating to them. They are a nonprofit funded entirely of the generosity of people who donate to them and, and encourage them and support them. If you can support them, please do. If you can't, bookmark their page and simply visit it from time to time to take a look at the stuff that they are handling. They handle cases nationwide. And by the way, I saw the list of counsel in here and I've met three of them also. <laughs> so I feel like these are friends of mine. And, and, and they are. They are friends of all of us because they're doing work like this that otherwise would be left up to people who probably couldn't afford it. So the case is called Snitco versus U.S. Um, it was issued yesterday. The opinion's brand new. The ink is still wet, as they say. So it's easy to find on the internet because that last name is unusual, Snitko, S-N-I-T-K-O. Uh, and there you go, a huge win for regular people and the Institute for Justice. Questions, comments, put them below. Let's talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for watching Lato's Law. If at first you don't succeed, you are like everyone else. It's called learning.